I'm sat in Malabar Junction, just off of Bloomsbury Square, with Professor of Politics at Birkbeck, Eric Kaufman. Uh, Eric, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It's great to be here, Jack. We're going to be talking today about your book, White Shift, which I'm really looking forward to getting into. But before we get there, could you say why you've chosen Malabar Junction? Well, it's a great South Indian uh, restaurant and actually was discovered by Paul Moreland, who is the author most recently of a book called Human Tide on on demographics and, and politics. Um, and him and I, him and I just tend, tended to meet here on a regular basis, so it became our haunt. Uh, and I've always enjoyed the food. It's sort of generally, if you come for lunch, it's not too busy. Uh, has a nice atmosphere. Has a sort of nice skylight that we hang out under, and it's reasonably priced. So, yeah, that's sort of how it became our uh, a special. And then since then, I've kind of come here with other people as well. And I think Paul Morland gets more than one reference in your book. Am I yes. correct? Yeah. In fact, a uh, little story is he was, even though he's a few years older than me, he was actually a graduate student of mine and did his PhD with us. Eric, you've lived in London for nearly 27 years yes. now, right? In, since 1993. Uh, you're a Canadian of Jewish, Chinese, and Latino heritage. Have I missed anything Correct. out? No, that's probably uh, pretty accurate. So a bit like me, I'm a quarter Maltese. You and I are both ah. a kind of a product of what you might call white shift. <laughs> right. Uh, a mixture of the unmixed and mixed, right. so to speak. Can I ask, how apprehensive were you about embarking on a book about the future of white majorities? I imagine you've given your fair share of disclaimers about what the book is and isn't, and have received more than your fair share of criticism for even attempting it. Absolutely. I guess I felt that it really was time, especially now that the populist wave has emerged and people are more at least open to, to, to looking for answers, to broach this subject. Um, and of course it has, it will awaken kind of cringe connotations in a lot of people. And I, I'm not sure that that's helpful in the current moment and going forward as well, because I think this will be an issue that defines the culture and politics of the next 50 years, next even 100 years. And so I think it's very important that we are able to have an honest conversation. I know publishers often insist on one-word titles, but I wanted to ask how you came up with the term white shift in particular. It's an interesting term. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So so there is a, a vogue for one-word titles. And white shift, okay, I knew there's something called redshift in physics. And, and so I just thought, well, let's let's explore this term white shift. And it's kind of handy when you can Google it. And the only thing that will largely come up is is that you'll also get certain kinds of dresses that will show up as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it has sort of two connotations. One is this idea of um, white majority decline, which is going to be, I think, the big story of, of our century in the West. Uh, but then the next century is going to be the rise of these mixed-race majorities through intermarriage, which will, I'm arguing, take on the collective memory traditions myths of ancestry of the existing white majorities. And that's kind of the, the white shift 2.0, if you like. The white shift 1.0 is what we're talking about in the news, is, which is the effect of um, demographic shifts on populism and polarization in the West. And we'll get on to that as well. Yeah. There's a long historical narrative woven throughout the book around attitudes towards migration in the West. And then there's also the attempt to unpack the politics of white shift by drawing attention uh, to what psychologists tell us uh, about the way people construct values around identity and belonging, place and culture and so on. So let's start with that timeline. We go back maybe four centuries where the general world population stays pretty flat. And then we get to the Industrial Revolution, after which birth rates across Europe go up significantly. So Europe's growing at an unprecedented rate, but it's happening at a time when a significant proportion of the population is dying by the time it reaches childbearing age. So when birth rates in countries like Denmark start to fall in the mid-20th century, developing countries such as Guatemala are starting to catch up, only this time with the benefit of modern medicine. So by the 1990s, its population has reached five times that of Denmark. That, in a nutshell, is why Western population's share of the global population starts to fall rapidly after 1950. And here is where I hand it to you to explain how this frames the various themes of the book. Well, yeah, because the wider context to this is the global demographic transition, which the West went through this transition earlier, followed by East Asia. But, but if you look at the globe... 97%, I don't know if that number is still exactly correct, it's not going to be lower. Pretty well all of the world's population growth is happening in the global south, the tropical belt. And so that is the source of immigration to the developed world, uh, now and in the future. 
Um, and so what you have is the demographics of the world are very much such that you have an aging uh, global north and you've got a, a youthful and growing global south. Africa population projections are 4 billion by the end of the century. And, and so clearly we're going to be seeing this dynamic continuing in our century. Now, that on its own isn't enough to explain demographic shifts within countries because East Asia has Japan, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan have been in the same globe. You also need the ideological shifts that we've seen in the West towards cultural liberalism and cosmopolitanism. What I term left modernism, that is what opens the gates, if you like, of countries like the United States, Australia, Canada in the mid-1960s to this demographic revolution that's occurring. And it's the combination then of the demography plus the ideology that leads to the the demographic changes. All right, so you mentioned a very interesting piece of legislation called the Hart Seller Act, a global immigration regime introduced in 1965, which seems to have quite a huge impact on attitudes towards immigration in America throughout the remainder of the 20th century. Could you explain what that piece of legislation does effectively? And then maybe we can go back to talk about the beginnings of what we might call the kind of ethnic core of the American settlers. It's important to note that the U.S. enacted quite restrictive immigration legislation in 1924 which largely reduced the number of immigrants coming in and also increased the share coming from Northern and Western Europe. 1965, they switched to a colorblind system which didn't have national preference. Um, when they switched, what's interesting, though, is it wasn't a plot or a plan to remake the American population. Uh, they actually believed that nothing would really change, but they just wanted to have the nice principle of not being you know, nationally selective. What, however, does occur is that after 1965, in fact, you do get non-European immigrations rising dramatically, and that then powers this uh, quite substantial shift in the composition of the American population from about 80 or 85 percent non-Hispanic white in 1960 to roughly 60% today. So that is on the back of these post-1965 changes. And something very similar occurs in Canada and in Australasia at the same time. Okay. And what happens there? Well, you, you have an end to something, something like a white Australia policy in, in Australia or in Canada. The preference was generally for uh, British or Northern European sources of immigration. And then it's only in the 60s that this starts to be dismantled. So it's the 60s moving into the early 70s is when you see a, a dismantling of these policies in a lot of countries. And to some extent in Europe, you're getting uh, migration from North Africa, uh, from Turkey and so on as well. Britain is a little bit of an outlier because it had a significant uh, migration from uh, the Indian subcontinent and the West Indies, which actually led it to enact quite restrictive legislation. So, yes. whereas the rest, if you take North America, uh, Australasia, they were moving in a liberal direction. Britain actually moved in a somewhat restrictive di uh, direction, so it has a slightly different trajectory to North America. Well, the history of immigration in America is really interesting. You describe the evolution of that ethnic core, that kind of wasp settler demographic, which has this vision of being able to assimilate others quite easily until around the 20th century. And that's where a divide opens up between a nationalist and a globalist sentiment. And that is where the modern conflict of conservative ethno-nationalism and liberal progressive pluralism starts to take root in America. Um, yeah, it's, that's really an important backstory because... In America, there were a lot of pronouncements about the U.S. as the asylum of nations and people fleeing tyranny come to, to the United States. You can, that even goes back to uh, the Puritans. Um, but at the same time, there was always an understanding that the ethnic core was bounded by, obviously, race. You know, African Americans were not part of it. American Indians were, were depending on how admixed they were, also not part of it. Um, and so you had these exclusions racially, but also religiously, that the U.S. at the time of independence was 98% Protestant, I mean, the, the free population. So it's an overwhelmingly Protestant country, and it was just taken for granted that that's what it was. And so when people say this is a nation of immigrants and it's the universal nation and it's only based on an idea, that's only a half-truth. It always shared space with this idea of... The, more or less a wasp melting pot ethnic core. So people could kind of melt in, but it was basically defined by white Anglo-Protestant. Um, 
what happens is when you get the first waves of large-scale Catholic immigration in the 1840s and 50s is when you start to see the beginnings of a populist right movement uh, called the American Party or Know Nothing Party. And, and then again in the 1890s, through to the 1920s, you get strong anti-Catholic and, um, you know, populist right mass movements occurring because actually the U.S. is both an ethnic nation and a civic nation, and it's that ethnic core that is being disrupted by uh, large-scale, in this case, Southern and Eastern European Catholic and to some extent Jewish uh, immigration. So it's not really a nation of immigrants. It's actually also got a kind of well, Native American was the term that was used in the 1850s. There's this sense of there is also a group that established the country. And, and that, if we look at the politics of Trump, for example, today, um, the WASP thing has morphed into a white, you don't have to be Protestant, but Judeo-Christian thing. And so it's become broader, but it is still sort of seen as as that core. And it's the sort of decline of that below 50%, which is already occurred in the under five population that is the backdrop to a lot of the kind of politics of white identity and of, of, of anxiety that is I believe underlying the Trump phenomenon Hi. No, 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 please. That's no, that's fine. Um, do you already know what you'd like to order, Eric? What, what do you generally go for when you're here? Yeah, I generally go for the um, konju manga curry, as you know, with a couple of orders of rice. And then um, I guess I'll have a Coke as well. Thanks. Well, should we get some poppadoms as well? Yeah, let's get some poppadoms for sure. And I'll have a Coke as well. But um, I think I will order the, the meat malabar, the sagalu, and uh, a peshwari naan. Thank you. So to break away from the American version of this story for a moment, you mentioned the UK. Last weekend, Justice Knowles was quoted on the front page of the Times warning of the Orwellian language encapsulated by relatively recently invented terms like a non-crime hate incident, uh, of which there have been recorded around 90,000 in the UK in the last five years. Race is clearly one of the most, if not the most polarizing subjects in public debate in Western countries today and legislators are tying themselves in knots to accommodate the broadening definition of racism, which is something you touch on in the book. And you put this down, of course, to the influence of left modernism. How has the left managed to achieve such overwhelming influence in this respect? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the less told stories, I think, of, the, of our century. And part of that comes from the fact that universities and the people who write books on this tend the kinds of people that are there tend to be broadly left modernist in orientation, and particularly if they study race. Um, and so what happens is you get the older taboos around homosexuality, around you know rock and roll, and all of these things uh, fall away. And then quite quickly they're replaced by new taboos around race, first racism, and then subsequently sexism and homophobia, and more recently transphobia have come into that. Now, the, the tricky thing here is you have a genuine, I guess I would say make a distinction between genuine racism, for example, where you are talking about race superiority or disliking an outgroup, and socially constructed or ideologically manufactured racism. For example, if somebody in class reads out a 19th century text that has the N-word as an example of what people were saying in the 19th century, and that's seen as racist by a student who is triggered then sudden, or, or if somebody says, you know, if somebody wants to dress in a Chinese prom dress and that's seen as cultural appropriation, and which is, which is insulting. So these are all examples of what I would call concept creep, which are the expanding definition of terms like racism. And now, that is an ideological project to control language, I think, to police language, because language is seen as an arena for power contestation by these activists, even though actually I don't believe it has empirically much demonstrable effect on these power relations at all. But uh, it is an area of contestation, so they have managed to broaden these definitions, come up with some new categories like transphobia, some new innovations. This is all based on an underlying ideology, which is around identity categories and the sacredness of these identity categories, and therefore where you sit in that, on the totem pole, um, of the kind of victim-oppressor totem pole in terms of these core identities, race, sex, sexuality, and gender, uh, determines what you are, when you speak, when you listen kind of thing. 
Um, and it's quite interesting. So I think that this is very similar to, say, fundamentalist Protestantism, where you have an underlying ideology, which is the religion. And then you have these upsurges of fundamentalist enthusiasm known as Great Awakenings. So in the U.S. case, the first Great Awakening was 1725-50. The second was 1815-1840. There's been a Pentecostalist awakening in the 20th century. Similarly with the, this ideology, which is not Marxism, it's not economic historical materialism. It's cultural. The cultural left blended with liberal cosmopolitanism. So it's a blend of a liberal idea, which is cosmopolitanism, and a left-wing idea, which is this kind of um, cultural identity protection and the sense of oppressor-victimhood power relations around these identities. So these two ideas have kind of come together and dominate the progressive left now and are setting the tone, because they are now dominant, are able to set the tone in cultural institutions and set the mores and taboos of society. So this is, it's a story that takes in the period from the 1960s to the, to the present, you see the progressive institutionalization of these taboos. And once you, you become dominant, or even if you're a very vocal minority like the trans lobby are able to silence or to make other people say, well, I'm not going to challenge this because I don't want to look like a, a bad person. So people who are progressive in sympathy, but they're not actually believers in political correctness, will keep their heads below the parapet and they won't challenge it. So you have, in addition to progressivism making inroads in all these institutions, particularly universities, uh, you know, always they were always progressive, but the proportions have shifted. So they are now overwhelmingly, you know, whereas it would have been two progressives for everyone conservative in 1960 in American universities. In social sciences and humanities, it's now upwards of, you know, nine to one. And so that, um, that really makes a difference. So these taboos become force multipliers. So even if most members of the Labour Party don't necessarily buy into this idea um, about, you know, self-defined gender identity. The taboo about stepping out of line may be strong enough that it will become the orthodoxy. Do you sense that since the general election in the UK last year, there's been a pause for thought about whether or not the sort of obsession with race, sex and gender may have in fact done more harm to the left than it has helped? Or do you think that they're doubling down? I would say that it's there's been a doubling down because the issue is that you have a, a, a small group that controls the Labour Party momentum who are very culturally progressive. And, I mean, I'm defining progressive in their terms now. I, I don't think it's particularly progressive. But even though they know they've lost badly, I think what they're trying to do is say, well, how can we keep the activists happy and keep... And somehow win election. So we'll 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 try and win absolutely, but we we think we can do it without endangering our progressivism. And so, for example, if you look at the way Lisa Nandy, who is in many ways arguably was the most sensible, the most the person who you would have thought would have been the best candidate for the Labour Party, I'd agree with that. And and she and and she has she's a Birkbeck alum as well, but <laughs> in many ways very sense talks very sensibly about things like national identity, and yet has fallen into this trans thing where, you know, if you don't agree with these principles, you're out of the Labour Party, mm-hmm. um, signed up to that, and seems to have not been willing to change her tune on a lot yes. of these questions. And it surprised me. I thought she would have been the one that would have bucked the trend, but Likewise, she hasn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is surprising and in a way not a good thing for the Labour Party because the other candidates... I don't think are particularly likely to be able to win back the kind of voters that, that they lost in 2019. So, yeah, and, and you see this in America as well, where the candidate, you know, Elizabeth Warren, of course, some of the things she said, again, on the trans issue, but also, uh, you know, on the issues around white privilege and issues around immigration. Um, essentially, if you're in the Democratic Party, to go against, for example, the idea of reparations for slavery, to go to defend the police for example, to talk about border security. All of those things are kind of off limits now. And that's simply going to make it harder for the Democrats to beat what is obviously a very flawed candidate in Donald Trump. So these 
It's important to kind of see how these taboos affect real-world politics by hemming in left-wing parties, making them, making it very difficult for them to reach to the median voter in the center. It makes it harder for them to win elections, but also has other downstream effects. The rise of the populist right has a lot to do with the power, the growing power of these politically correct progressive mores. So, for example, if you're in Sweden and Sweden is having large-scale immigration and the mainstream parties don't want to talk about immigration because they don't want to be attacked as racist, then there is a big open market for a new party that is willing to transgress those taboos. And in come the Sweden Democrats and quickly they're up to 25% of the votes. So that's just an example of where that opening wouldn't be there were it not for these speech restrictions and red lines on what is is and is not acceptable. And, and of course, you have to have red lines. I, I, I don't disagree with the concept of red lines, but where those lines are placed is a, is a contest. And I think the progressive left has pushed those lines so narrow on certain issues, anything touching on these sacred values of race, you know, that can be associated with race, uh, gender, and sexuality, that in those areas, it's just an open field for anyone who's willing to address those issues. And, and that's been the populist right. Because without those taboos, without the narrowing of what political scientists call the Overton window of acceptable debate, um, there would be no market share for uh, populist right parties or even populist right figures. If you had somebody who would sensibly talk about border control in a measured way from the mainstream parties, then you wouldn't have this phenomenon. And of course, what's happened is since the populist right has done well, the mainstream parties, particularly center-right, have actually started to do that. And lo and behold, they're taking votes away from the populist right. More on that later. Yeah. We have four poppadoms staring at us here, so let's get started with those at least. Good idea. <laughs> Speaking then as a Canadian, um, how do you feel about the liberal project of Canada, which it seems has been very successful in some ways, but of course runs into the same problems that left modernism inculcated in the UK? Yes, I think it's very important. Canada is kind of in the vanguard, I would say. I mean, Sweden used to be prior to the rise of the Sweden Democrats, but I'd say Canada exemplifies best uh, the leading edge of what a society might look like if left modernism took over. And, and Quebec is an exception, which I'll talk, I can talk about. But essentially, Canada lost its tradition. The reason that it was formed was essentially to remain loyal to the crown. So loyalism and unionism was the raison d'etre for the formation of English Canada. Um, when the British Empire declines in the 1950s and 60s, Canada changes its flag from the Union Jack to the Maple Leaf and undergoes an identity crisis. The British loyalist tradition essentially fades away and there's a vacuum at the center of, of Canadian identity, which is filled by this new left-wing um, multicultural identity, which is first instituted in the under uh, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, in 1971 with the Canadian Multiculturalism Act, at a time when Canada really was not particularly multicultural, at least not in the sense of being multiracial. So it had a couple of percentage non-European. It did have... Uh, you know, a small percentage of non-British and non-French ancestry, yes, but this was still a, a, a definite small minority. So it was very much a deliberate uh, creation. Uh, and so Canada is, in a way, the child of the left modernist rise of the 60s, that first great awakening, if you like. Um, Trudeau is simply incarnating the kind of third great awakening of the post-2014 period, um, and by saying that Canada has no core culture and it's post-national, that kind of rhetoric had already been around for some time in academia, but he's very much bringing it to the fore as the Canadian identity. Uh, what's interesting is, is, though, that you now, whereas Canadians, really, as the dem demographic shifts were coming in, you had some disquiet, um, but still people bought into multiculturalism, at least the term. What people thought when they heard the term was essentially, well, I don't want to be a racist and be a bad person, so I'm going to, I better be in favor of multiculturalism. I mean, so that is part of 
why it, it, it gained a lot of credence. Now what you're seeing is a growing partisan polarization, almost unprecedented polarization. So if you take conservative voters in Canada, their approval of Justin Trudeau is sort of between 3 and 6% if you take the last year. I mean, it is almost zero. And liberal voters now, I think their approval was up to 90, but it's, it's, it's you know, certainly above 60. So you're now seeing... U.S. levels of polarization in Canada, and that's largely a factor in the last five years. You look at immigration attitudes, you've seen a similar massive change just in the last five, six years where the party supporters were maybe 10, 15 points apart in their desire to reduce immigration. That's now around 50 points, as in America. So again, this polarization is happening as much in Canada as, as elsewhere. National populism in the West is still regarded as quite a binary anti-immigration stance. You use the term ethno-traditional conservatism to explain better what's really happening. How does this concept improve our perspective on that? Right. Well, the way that people tend to talk about national populism is in terms of using these terms ethnic nationalism versus civic nationalism. So ethnic nationalism is the idea that you must be a member of the ethnic majority to be an equal uh, member of the nation. So that is a very exclusive notion. Clearly, that would imply that an ethnic minority cannot be, let's say, British or American. So, so that is kind of a very um, exclusive concept. Civic nationalism is seen as the inclusive form of nationalism where it's just about loyalty to, let's say, the American creed or British values or the Constitution. Sorry. So it's a kind of political and ideological nationhood. Now, the problem is those terms were developed for a time um, between the wars when, or even post-Second World War when really the issue was not immigration. The issue was borders moving around due to the collapse of empire, due to uh, war and so on, peace settlements. And so really those terms, I don't think, they've tried to retrofit those terms for the era of immigration and multiculturalism and diversity. And I don't think those terms are actually doing a good job of describing what's going on now. Because if you actually poll populist right voters and say, well, do you have to be white to be an immigrant, to be an equal member of the nation? Only a very, very small minority will say yes. And if even if you ask them, should immigration be zero, only a small minority or only a minority will agree to that. So actually... That's not really the outlook of a lot of these voters. What their outlook is, is, well, anybody can be an equal member of the nation, regardless of ethnic background. I'm talking about most of their voters, not the extremists, of which they're definitely sure, are. Sure, sure. Um, but, you know, anybody of any, any race can be a member, equal, equal member of the nation. But um, we are also not completely... Uh, uninterested in trying to slow down the decline of the ethnic majority. So the historic ethnic composition of the nation is part of its character. It doesn't define who's a member, but it's part of its character. It's a little bit like if you, you know, there's, there's an English accent and there's a French accent and an Indian accent and so on. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody with a French accent or an Indian accent cannot be an equal member of the British nation, for example. Um, they are just as equal a member of the nation, but that doesn't mean that an Indian accent or a French accent is a British accent, right? There are, so one is referring to the level of individual inclusion and exclusion and belonging, and the other is referring to what distinguishes this collectivity in the world. So if we were to take Britain, for example, part of what's distinct about Britain is that a significant chunk of its population are descended from uh, the ethnic majority. But clearly it's, there have been ethnic minorities throughout its history and continue to be. And that is not a criteria. Being a member of the ethnic majority is not a criteria for membership, just like having a British accent is not a criteria for membership. And yet it's so difficult to have this conversation, to explain that, particularly to someone who's a progressive and will immediately, if you talk about any of these ethnic characteristics and conserving or slowing down, that will be immediately labeled ethnic nationalism, but it's not. So a lot of the populist right voters, are what they're actually about is slowing this change so that newcomers 
can be assimilated ethnically, not just integrated into the labor market. Right. And so that's a very important difference. And, and, and if you look at the history of, say, the United States after the big wave of immigration in the period 1890 to 1925, it actually took until about 1970 or even the 1980s, so three or four generations for of relatively low immigration in order for those new groups to more or less melt in. And that, that shade of gray, every, they always want to, you know, critics will always want to make this about black and white. You're either open or closed. You're either civic or ethnic. But what I'm trying to sort of point out is you could have this gray position, which is to say anyone can be an equal member of the nation, but we're also interested in the cultural, uh, the ethnic composition of the country is not totally irrelevant to nationhood. It is a component of nationhood. Um, it may not be the the what's on the official letterhead and what people are talking about officially, but it's part of what scholars would call everyday nationhood, along with things like landscape and history and accent and all of these things, which are not officially enumerated as part of the political project of nationhood, but actually also are important to the character of nationhood. So that's really the the battleground, I think. Um, it's not, I think, breaking it into simple ethnic civic binaries is not that useful. And of course the book is filled with examples. I mean, we take a closer look at the data you incorporate from the field of psychology, for example. Uh, there's a passage in the book where you describe two people, both American, one is black, one is white. Were they to cross paths in an airport, say, they would favor one another more instinctively, regardless of their politics, than a white American and a white Frenchman. Similarly, an Islamic fundamentalist uh, will feel more akin to an Arab fundamentalist than a Pakistani fundamentalist, yet closer to a Pakistani fundamentalist than, say, an Arab Christian. But you also go on to argue that racial nationalism holds lasting power over people's feelings about identity. Well, the, the core concept in the book is really this idea of ethnicity, which is a subjective belief in common ancestry, which is the basis of uh, the ethnic com ethnic community. Now, these ethnic communities also have to be able to distinguish their members from members of other ethnic communities, and that's typically done through one or more of uh, language, religion, or physical appearance. The only thing I would say, however, is that in many cases, the boundary lines between groups are fuzzy. And, you know, if you think about, for example, um, an assimilated... Kurd in Turkey versus an ethnic Turk. That's a kind of fuzzy line. And there's a lot of examples. A Ukrainian and a Russian. A Ukrainian who's Russian-speaking might have a Russian-sounding name. A, U a Russian who might have a Ukrainian-sounding... I mean, it's a kind of a blurry boundary. And so you have a lot of cases where the, the boundaries are blurry between ethnic groups. Now, what matters more in this? Is it race? Is it religion? Etc.? Um, you have situations where religion overrides race, and, and clearly, you know, if you took an, uh, a Jew who was black and from Ethiopia, uh, you know, a, a European Jew is going to feel closer to that person than, a, a, you know, somebody who is Arab but maybe looks closer to to that European Jew. So, so there, clearly, the the ethnicity is signified by religion is over overpowering the what might seem on the surface to be a racial resemblance that should put the European Jew closer to the Arab than to the, to, to the African, but actually that's not how it works. So it just depends which marker signifies the subjective membership in group. Right, okay. That's what's key. And now sometimes it is race. So in the United States South, um, you know, a, a black Protestant and a white Protestant, the white Protestant feels closer to the white Jew than to the black Protestant, despite sharing religion with the black Protestant, because that's how ethnicity and, and, and what's been given significance socially. Now, the only way, I, what I would say is that if everything is absolutely equal socially, that's when race can be the tiebreaker. But most times, history will have bequeathed one or other to be more important. I mean, I remember in Northern Ireland being at a... July 12th parade and watching the, you know, um, which is for the Protestant community there. And um, there would be, uh, bl you know, blacks would sometimes march, you know, black Protestant orangemen would march in that parade from Africa, would be welcomed in a way 
that a Catholic from Northern Ireland would be seen very much as the enemy. So, so we, it just depends on the situation and what has become um, salient for marking out ethnic identity. In terms of the way that racial nationalism can be used, then let's talk a little bit about Trump's position. So much has been written about his personal beliefs about race and culture, but does he have any real position on these things, in your view? I... I think he may have some inklings, but I think it's very fungible. And I think that, as I say in the book, I mean, until quite recently, he's been very much open board, not open borders, but he's been sort of liberal on immigration. Yes. He was very critical of Pat Buchanan, for example. Um, and, you know, he has this quote, well, Buchanan, he's against the, the Jews, he's against immigrants, anyone who wants to come in this country, sort of very much taking what now would be seen as a kind of elite Republican, Republican National Committee type view on, on this matter, but really came to this issue quite late. I have been told that he actually did come to a more protectionist position prior to taking office, but I'm not sure he's, he can't really be understood as an ideologue. I think he sort of sensed where the wind was blowing, and I think this is somewhat, in, you know, quite instrumental in his case. And, and he's actually flipped and flopped around on some of these questions. I just see in the news now that his chief of staff says that uh, the U.S. desperately needs more immigration, and, and he's, you know, the Kushner wing of the, you know, the faction is tends to be also relatively pro-legal immigration. Um, so he sort of arbitrates between these competing factions, and yeah. I'm not sure his instincts are particularly strong. There's an interesting segment that points to the fact that the political importance of immigration to the problems affecting white populations almost always mirrors the media's coverage of immigration. So you give the example of the U.S. media where during a slow month, say, 12 negative articles, there's a 7% increase in the number of people who say that immigration is the most important issue facing the states. Uh, a busier month, 60 negative articles on immigration, it increases to 43% who say the same. Could we talk a little bit about this and about how market segmentation, channels, both radio, television and others, pitch themselves to audiences with specific opinions around immigration that have led to this growth in popular sentiment and the inability of people to see each other this point of view. Yes. Okay. So there's some some interesting things there. I mean, I'd say the first thing to note is this link between immigration levels, media coverage, and the rising salience. So the, the, what happens is it's not as though people switch. If there's higher immigration, the people who were pro-immigration before don't suddenly become anti. Those Your immigration attitudes, whether you want less or more, are very largely given by deep psychological factors and ideological factors. However, what happens is that with immigration numbers, more media coverage, immigration rises up the agenda of people who, who already said they wanted less, but maybe the economy or foreign policy was the number one issue. Now it's immigration. And that's what happens. There's a larger share of people who say immigration is the most important issue facing America or Britain. And once that happens, the populist right polls start to go up. So there was a study in, in looked at nine out of ten West European countries between 2005 and 2016, um, and what they found was essentially this relationship where you had wherever immigration numbers went, media coverage went, and then the importance of immigration started to rise, and then the populist right started to rise on the back of that immigration salience measure. So that's the key measure, right? And, and actually, that's gone down in this country since Brexit, and therefore immigration is a lower pitch, and the populist right is going to do less well in that situation. Um, and of course, one of the big questions is, in this country, well, what's going to happen post-Brexit uh, if this issue comes back? You would expect a, a populist right new party to emerge. So that's the kind of broad macro relationship. But of course, you've also had media fragmentation, as you mentioned, the U.S. case is interesting. Fox News, for example, was quite pro-immigration or at least wasn't raising the issue of immigration anywhere near it did after 2015. So if you recall, Fox News was actually anti-Trump, was opposing Trump, and there was the whole Megyn Kelly incident. But really, Fox News was aligned to the Republican Party establishment around this question. Um, it, yes, it would talk about illegal immigration, but it didn't really want to talk that much about the general issue of illegal numbers and certainly didn't want to make this a central pivot of, of their politics compared to, say, religion or neoconservative 
democracy promotion or, or low tax. Post-2015, with Trump in, suddenly there's a pivot. Suddenly, people like Tucker Carlson, who actually wasn't especially hawkish on, on immigration, is suddenly now talking about it. And Fox News is talking about it. So that shows you, and this is, so what's happened is Trumpism alters also the media landscape which, of course, in the U.S. was already partisan polarized to a great degree. But it's just that the messaging shifts to become more the kinds of populist issues Trump was talking about. That is stressing more questions such as political correctness and immigration and less on religion, less on uh, democracy promotion and economics. Uh, So it's not... I mean, the media polarization has kind of been ongoing... Uh, it has existed for a longer period of time. I don't think that's necessarily been sparked by populism. Of course, it reinforces polar- polarization in, in the electorate. But, but what's interesting here in Britain is actually both the left and the right-wing papers and press were talking about immigration more as the numbers rose. So it's not just the right-wing press. Another rather surprising find in the book, conservative radio listeners in the US generally don't show signs of being swayed one way or another on the issue of immigration but that liberal listeners form a much stronger view. There are other examples you give about how liberals generally tend towards more binary positions, particularly when judging others based on their voting decisions. What do you make of this? Yeah, so because the U.S. has been polarizing, uh, and and why has it been polarizing? It's important to have a bit of a backstory in the sense that it used to be the case that most voters in in America would describe themselves as conservatives Mm -hmm. and also as Democrats. The link between ideology and, and party support really wasn't there in 1980 but by the time we you know fast forward to the 2010s there's a a 90 percent correlation now between the ideology of a state and the partisanship of a state which and and that correlation just wasn't there so gradually ideology and partisanship have come together um and so you've now started to get what's sort of an emotional negative view of the other party and also, with that comes a lot of distortions, and, and that's on both sides. So, you know, the average Republican thinks something like, I think it was 30% of Democrats are LGBT. So, you know, clearly there are some distortions there, and then the Democrats see, um, you know, the average Republican as, as uh, you know, earning $200,000 a year or something. So you have these distortions. One thing they found, however, is that when it comes to not wanting your child to marry somebody of the other party, uh, there are strong feelings on both sides, so it's not skewed, but it is skewed when you get to the higher education levels. Right. Because one of the problems on the Democrat side, amongst the white liberals, is that white liberals who are well-educated, of high education, have a very, very uh, mono, monopartisan, if you like, so all of their friends would have the same views. Whereas high education, high educated Republicans would have a much broader range of friends, and so would less well educated liberal Democrats would also have more of a range. They would know some Republicans. Well, why is that? I mean, it's not enough, I suppose, just to point to the irony of the educated elites being the more closed in terms of those they entertain conversations with and consider friends. Well, yeah. So, first of all, education doesn't actually make you less prejudiced. So, (laughs) higher education is correlated with lower. Uh, ethnic and racial prejudice and higher ideological and political prejudice. And also liberals who are well-educated, their circles, their social circles are very uniform. This is one of the issues. So they're never encountering somebody in a situation of equality and, and, and something, you know, where they're seeing the humanity of this person with a different ideology. And that's p- kind of one of the reasons why you have more of this negative affect towards say a child marrying somebody of the other party in that particular segment of kind of well-educated elite if you like uh, liberals in america you see that here too uh, in britain on the leave remain question for example remainers are are considerably more negative towards leavers uh, you know their child marrying a leaver than a, a leaver is towards their child marrying a remainer and part of this is this there's, there's a moralistic aspect to this where the view is well we feel morally superior to them, they're retrograde, and therefore this is the justification. So they wouldn't see it as tribalism, which it is. They would tend to see it as a morally justified um, thing. And, and, and that's perhaps why it's not seen as the same thing as ethnic prejudice. But yes, it essentially is. 
You argue that, and I quote, values, the individual's social psychological makeup of an individual, are much closer to explaining the vote than demographics of any kind. What data demonstrate this most vividly? Well, I think, for example, if you look at the Brexit vote, I mean, we could do this with the Trump vote or any other populist right vote. You can look at income and see that there's no, essentially no difference between rich and poor white Americans and their propensity to vote Trump when you've controlled for other factors. Um, you can look at the Brexit vote and see that there is a difference, but it's not a great difference between rich and poor uh, in terms of voting leave. Yes, poor people are more likely to vote leave than rich, but it's not that big. Whereas education level, you know, having only left school at age 16 without qualifications versus having a degree, that is a much more consistent predictor uh, than income or class or whether you lost a job. Anything material doesn't seem to matter very much. However, even education is not as important as, for example, your views on the death penalty. Um, if you strongly support okay. the death penalty, uh, then you're much more likely to be anti-immigration and much more likely to be a lever than if you're against the death penalty. There's a paper co-authored by the brilliant social psychologist Jonathan Haidt which finds that people who favor tighter immigration policies also favor family over friendships, whereas those who favor looser immigration policies favor friendships over family. Our attitudes towards freedom of movements secretly to do with how fondly we as individuals feel towards our own origins. I think there is a link, yes. I mean, it's it's mediated by different things. But, for example, if you take in this country a question such as, uh, quote-unquote, family is everything, how much do you agree with that on a five-point strongly agree to strongly disagree scale? And then we look at views on immigration, for example. The people who strongly agree that family is everything, even if you just take people under 30, only people under 30 who strongly agree with that statement, family is everything, um, they are much, much more anti-immigration than people who disagree with that statement. So, for example, amongst people who want immigration reduced a lot and who are under age 30, about 75% of them would, would agree with the statement, family is everything. Amongst under 30s who want more liberal immigration, only about 30 or 35% would agree with that statement. So it's a massive kind of... 40 points difference in views on family. We also wow, know, for yeah. example, we also know that, for example, views on family affect attachment to ancestry group, which is which affects attachment to racial group. That's all connected. Um, so that orientation, when Jonathan Haidt talks about is that, yes, some people have that more uh, family-oriented ascribed groups, things you're born into rather than things you've chosen, like friendship groups, uh, which is more important for liberals. You know, these are kind of orientations which are psychological. They're not definitive, so you can still be have that kind of orientation towards family and wind up being pro-immigration. That could be, or vice versa. But it is an influence, and uh, I think Haidt is right to, to make that point. So if we go to the end of the book, where you're talking about what white majorities can do to maximize the chance of a secure future. You, you sort of describe the two choices the white majorities have. You either become a purely white, tiny minority in a country that is majority non-white, or you have a majority mixed race which identifies as white. And you're saying that this is kind of the, the optimal... Well, uh, yeah, I would think that would be, and the reason I say that is for two reasons. One is that, yeah, if you become a racial caste, then, you know, I think there are, obviously that I think is more negative implications in terms of hierarchy and so on. But also, um, I do think that a secure kind of melting pot majority anchored society is actually more cohesive. That actually what people don't realize is that the so-called civic na national concept relies implicitly on a secure ethnic majority and it's the sort of unseating of that and erosion of that ethnic majority which then um, filters through to the civic nation so you know if you want to have a nation that is cohesive in a way it i think implicitly relies upon this notion of a kind of ethnic majority and and i i would just think that it's better to make an inclusive ethnic majority that is open to people mixing in 
Earlier as we were eating, you mentioned that you may have a new book on the way. Is there anything you can say about that at this moment? Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of interested in exploring the idea that um, we need to find a cultural center the way we found an economic center between capitalism and communism, let's say. Uh, between, let us say, diversity and monoculture, between, between, let us say, a progressive outlook on race, sex, and gender, and, 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 a, and a traditionalist view, some sort of meeting in the middle, which, which means essentially that um, the kinds of cultural trends we've seen in our elite institutions, which are essentially an unchecked, what I would see as an unchecked fundamentalist progressivism, needs to be sort of reined in by science, by rigorous definitions, by, by falsifiability. Essentially, this idea of the referee being reined in, you know, not calling false positives. We've got to strengthen that part of our society that ensures against false positives while main ch- making sure that we also call penalties. And, and it's that um, insurance against false positives that we haven't yet built into our, particularly our institutions, which are increasingly, I think, at risk of uh, being captured by this ideology. And, and so really the resistance needs to actually get into those institutions, museums and universities and media and so on, and start to actually build up that counter force to this progressivism to balance it. So we have an optimizing rather than a maximizing uh, culture. Well, there's no doubt we need more light on uh, these issues. And I'm very excited to hear about this new book. I can't wait to read it whenever it comes out. Eric Kaufman, thank you very much. Thanks very much.